This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. All right, welcome to the Whitetail Legacy Podcast. We got Whoa! A- <laughs> what is going on Dude, in here? We're back in the studio. I'm pumped yeah. up. I'm ready to go. Yeah, we got like 75 people in this room. No, <laughs> we got two two uh, two floater guests that are just hanging out that are buddies. One's got a white to legacy T-shirt on. The other one doesn't. He's repping. Yeah, so we'll, we'll just we'll just throw that out. But yeah, we got we got three legal deadheads. Let's point that out with tags on the ground over there. Um, one one actually, Ryan shot. We're gonna go into that later. That's yeah, a pretty, different podcast. Pretty good unit right there. Yeah. Let's get right into this. Uh, we had Preston from DIY Hunter on. The guy is a rocket, man, dude. I dig him a lot. He's he's I, he's got the best personality we've had on this podcast for a podcast. You know what I mean? He he crushed it. I thought so. Yeah, he. You know, we we mentioned he's just wide open twenty four seven, and that's exactly what he is. Yeah, he he is full of knowledge. He he hunts out east in Pennsylvania. So that's something different that we have never had on this podcast. So we are super, you know, pumped that we can call, have people call in and and uh, get get that knowledge from other states. So we're gonna go right in to our partners. Absolutely. You know where I'm taking this unit that I got? Where's that? Right to Ingram's Outdoor Obsession. Right to Ingram's Outdoor Obsession. What what turn are you gonna do? You know, I don't know. Uh, that's one thing. You gonna I- do lick in the back? <laughs> you know, I, I've just with talking with Chris, I've done showed him multiple pictures of stuff that's cool. You know, just like one of them doing like a ski, and it's a back backpack mount, and it's got the skis on it. You know, that'd be cool, just because it's a deadhead. Um, you know, I did showing him the one with the American flag on the shoulder. He said he would do it. Um, and then. Showing the one with the arrow in it, with the with the blood coming down the fence post, that'd yeah. be cool. Uh, you got a lot of options. Here. I know, yeah. I'd, You're floating pretty hard. <laughs> I, I don't have any history. I don't have any pictures or anything like that. I've seen this deer for maybe 12 seconds. So the way I seen him that I would get him mounted is upright, but 
already have an upright, and you know you've you've gotten a couple different different mounts. I'll put this out there: no uprights. Uprights, no. I don't like them. No, I already told the wife. I said I don't. I, I don't you, want to do an upright. I think you lose a lot of the detail when you do an upright. That's just my opinion. Yeah, I. You know, I'm thinking more full sneak turned right. Um, I'm not not 100 percent sure. I. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk to Chris when I go to his place and see see what's. Yeah. Well, Chris. See if he's got yeah. any cool ideas. I'm like, sure he he's does. Got, yeah, I mean, yeah, he's whatever you do. Chris is gonna crush it because. He's a baller. He's going to smoke it. He's going to take it to Rack City and back, and he is the working class taxidermist. You know, and I cannot wait to get a mount that actually has a tanned hide instead of that dry preserve that he was yeah. talking about because the guy that I used to use was dry, dry preserve. Preserved. And then after I seen your mounts from him, man, dude, that tanned is way better. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we got we got a guy in studios getting a crappie done by him too, so. Now shifting over to our new partnership with ECW Hunting Calls, home of the Angry Duck. All of these calls are handmade at one at a time. When you buy a call, you're supporting a veteran. They are not mass-produced. They're made here locally in Illinois, and each of the calls is unique to its own. You know, not each each call has got its own nicks and crannies, and they're not mass-produced. And the calls are now available at Presley's in Martinville, Illinois. And at River's Edge in Canton, if you're local listener, you got to get it. You got to check it out. They're also at Angry Duck Calls at Gmail. Hit them up if you are interested in getting a call. I saw his Facebook page. You can hit him up. For sure. Uh, super cool guy. Jeff is uh, one of a kind. He's a veteran. 12-year veteran, right? Yes. Yeah, 12-year veteran. Done tons of stuff. Trained multiple people. And we can't thank him enough for what he's done for this country so thank you so much jeff for partnering with us and we can't wait to see what happens man i'm ready to slay some turkeys with some yeah. ecw hunting calls I know, i'm ready to, to get some turkeys out that's coming up quick i think a couple podcasts up we're gonna kind of go into a little turkey talk a little little past deer talk we got a lot coming up so so not to forget there are weeks vip shout out but we have chris spears and he was part of the U.S. Navy from 2002 to 2014. He was a K-9 handler, and he did two Iraq tours. And he had several presidential Secret Service missions. And so, Chris, here at Whitetail Legacy, we thank you. Back to Preston on this one, man. He crushed it. Uh, I, I don't know what else to say. The guy has super knowledge about hunting out east. Um, super packed info uh, podcast on this one. This is a note taker. Yeah, this is this one's got a ton of info. Uh, guys, super knowledgeable, super humble too, which is awesome. Make sure and check out their YouTube, their Instagram, DIY Hunter, um, Facebook page. We're gonna we'll share all the links with with our our link that we put out. One thing I do want to say is, you know, along with Sharon, uh, we did ask everybody to like and share everything with Hua Deer Hunt for Heroes, and you exceeded all of our expectations. Everybody liked, shared it. Uh, that was super awesome because we really like what they're doing, and we want to reach as many people about the stuff like that that people are doing, and that yeah. that's all that's all we can really yeah. do about you that. guys kicked ass at sharing that last post yeah. man you guys crushed it so we appreciate anybody that shares stuff we got a lot of hardcore uh lovers of this podcast that we're friends with that are helping us out along the way so we can't 
We can't thank them enough. So We appreciate all that you guys are doing for us. Yeah. All right, guys, we got Preston from DIY Hunter on the line out of Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Thanks for coming on, man. Yeah, absolutely. No problem. I appreciate it. I know uh, we were kind of fighting on time frames that weren't weren't lining up real well for us, but seems like got me locked in the car here for a little while, and you guys happen to be around, so we might as well get this thing on the books. Heck, yeah, we worked it out. I'm glad. I'm pumped about this. I've been telling you. I've never, I've never hunted out east. I know nothing about it. it. It, you know, most people are like, I want to go out west and stuff, but I want to just go on adventure whitetail hunts. And out east is just super cool to me. So, in studio today, we got myself, Cody. We got Ryan, yeah, or homie, and we got Preston. So, we're gonna get right into this and uh, start off. Homie, hit him with the first question of the day. Yeah, let's go. All right, Preston, so as Cody said there on the intro, uh, you got the DIY hunting. Uh, what kind of made you s- want to start that? Honestly, I, this that's probably one of the first things a couple of the other podcasts I've been on, or even just friends and colleagues. No joke, uh, it's comprised of three of us. Uh, me, and, me and Jack, we've been friends for 24 years, 23 years, actually – Oddly enough, we grew up in north central Pennsylvania, about three hours from Pittsburgh, and he moved as a very young kid when his dad retired, and we became really, really good friends, and Jack's actually part of the DIY hunter, and me and him have hunted out west and fished. We've done a lot together. One of my hunting properties in Pittsburgh actually is caddy corner to his childhood home, so if you want to talk about small world, and he didn't hook me up with that, just random luck. He came and visited me, and we went and saw his house, and it's actually catty corner to the property I hunt on in Pittsburgh. So I thought that was weird in general, just to throw that out there about the team a little bit. But he sort of pushed this, and I kind of just took it to my exuberant, over-the-top level that I do kind of everything. I don't I don't know. Not, I'm not saying toot-toot, but I just do everything 5,000% or I don't do it. And uh, we were in Idaho archery hunting elk this fall and my social media was kind of growing which i had started in like june i just started it that spring and he's like hey do you think like any of this crap we're doing like planning our hunts for the next five years and doing all this run around the country he's like you think that'd be something people would watch i was like yeah probably he's like yeah i don't know i just watch a lot of these guys and it's like not real interesting stuff not to say there's not a ton out there that isn't awesome, but there's a lot that's kind of basic that's still really, really busy. And he's like, we're already doing it. He goes, well, why don't we just start like filming it and stuff? He's like, we already sell film. I was like, all right. I'm like, what about Cam? And Cam's another team member. He's out of Columbus, Ohio. And I was like, why don't I grab Cam too? He's like giant big buck slayer. Guy's putting down deer nonstop. Coyote hunts, big game hunt. I'm like, let's grab him too. I was like, all right, by January, lo and behold, we had DIY Hunter, we had Logos, website, and I just sort of put the pedal to the metal, and we were like, we just have to make sure we document everything, put it in front of people, and why we're doing it, I think I want to build exposure to three working-class guys with families, building houses, running businesses, getting it done in terms of not filling tags, but experience building every year in multiple states with multiple species so that the layman Joe blow guy, the blue collar 
that we are can go, ah, maybe it's more possible than I gave it credit for because we're not millionaires and we're not pros at it at all by any means of the word. Nobody gives us money to do it, but we're doing it just based on saving money for two years, saving money for three years and uh, hunt multiple states, get permission from the wife and sleep in your truck for two nights to hunt public land. Like very, very cheap, if not next to costing nothing to get it done. And we thought there's a huge market for that in terms of being able to share how we're doing it and, and why we're doing it so that other people can kind of learn from our mistakes and learn from our victories, I guess. So that's a really long winded answer, but I would say that's why we started doing it. So there's no monetary or I guess any other side thing other than uh, just to show people how we're doing it because our friends and family already ask us. So why not put it out to the public? Cause it's not like it's a big secret. Yeah, for sure. I know uh, Cody last weekend at the Elmwood show found out that how small the world really was. And uh, as you said there, you kind of had a long winded answer and I took, took a couple notes down. You said that you're pretty exuberant. And uh, yeah, that's as, the reason I wanted to have you on the podcast. Cause I talked to a homie and I was like, Hey man, this guy's Instagram videos are awesome. He's putting out awesome YouTube videos. He's 110 the whole time. And you, I, uh, when I watch uh, something hunting, I relate a lot, even podcasts, I relate a lot to personality and I just really dig, Absolutely. I just really dig your personality. So I think your guys's hunting will make a show, but also the personality of the person is it's fifty percent to me, you know. So that's why I reached out and wanted you to come on because you're just a go getter like us, you know. So that's why oh, we wanted you on. Oh, I would absolutely. I attract one hundred percent to personalities when it comes to anything someone's trying to teach me. No different than I would. God, I haven't been in college showing my age, but eight or ten years ago I graduated, <laughs> and uh, eight or ten years ago, look, I'm being nice to myself. Ten or twelve years ago, but I remember my very specific professors and I don't even necessarily know what classes it was I had with them only due to the fact they were teaching something that they weren't faking and caring about. And it just burned into my head. And I know there's a lot of gripe and grime. There's fake personalities to be on the camera and people are going to see right through that. And I was like, Oh God, they're not going to have to worry about that. I had even a couple YouTube videos. People thought I was selling it for the camera. I was like, if you met me for a half an hour, you're going to be like, nah, this guy either doesn't have interest or it's balls to the wall the entire time. There's, I have no gray area, which that, that's a win and a loss sometimes. But as far as like the outdoors and being into it, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty much over the top about it all the time. It's just, you got to work too, unfortunately. So you got to separate yourself here and there. I would say we're seven minutes into this podcast here and I can already tell that you are just jacked up 24-7 balls to the wall. Yeah, I love it, dude. I love it. A podcast twice a week till the end of time if people would call me about them. <laughs> like, like, who doesn't want to go on there and talk about something, whether you're even good or you suck at it, you still talk about it. Like, it's just fun. I mean, it's fun. And honestly, like, in Pittsburgh, I have a pretty tight-knit, small hunting community in terms of friends. Um, hunting's very, very accepted but it's not a ton of people do it necessarily. So it's not like you're talking on a day-to-day basis with people about it. So it's fun to match up with people and kind of hear different things and make connections in different States. And to go back on when you said, 
one of the main goals, truthfully, even at this point, I have a couple states where I have already gained contacts. One of the main goals is I want to be 40 years old and throw up a state that year that I want to hunt in. And I have that contact and they're going to hunt with me and whoever's coming with me for elk or mule deer or whitetail. And we just go out and we don't pay any outfitters because we already have kind of your own outfitter. Like that's sort of my goal. Like I want to hunt Illinois. Well, I got guys that are going to point me in the right direction because I've known them for 10 years. That's sort of the main goal. And, and that's a personal gain, I guess that doesn't benefit really anyone else. But with this type of stuff, that's kind of the connections I'm looking to make where a girl that works for me, her boyfriend, I want to go on a mountain lion hunt. And I said, now he found one before I could get to it. But I said, let me put out feelers. I'll find one. And I just started contacting all my Idaho, Colorado. Hey, where would you go? What would you do? Getting like reputable sources that are in the grind in that area that are going to shoot you straight. And I think that to me is worth every dollar it costs me doing this DIY stuff to gain those type of access to places, hands down. Yeah, for sure. We we actually met an awesome guy. His name's Justin, and I'm super good friends with him. I can tell we're going to be friends like for the rest of our life, and we met through this podcast. He just messaged in, said he liked what we were doing, and uh, we – I mean, I I message him like every day or every other day now. He so I mean, oh, yeah. the connections you meet, and like we say on this, most people in the outdoors that are hunters are genuine good people, you know, and Gen- genuine generally yes. And they want to help other people out. You know, there's going to be selfish guys that don't want, you know, anything anybody to be on their land or whatever like that. But but I mean, oh, yeah. most people are pretty pretty legit if they're in the outdoors. You know. Oh, I I'll be I'll be dead honest with you guys. <laughs> I got a couple of buddies right here in Pittsburgh and they're like, Hey, what, 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 what area were you in this weekend? And I'm like, Oh, Southish of Pittsburgh. And they're like, <laughs> Come on, man. I'm like, yeah, you know, like plus or minus somewhere here ish. And they're like, Oh, like, I'm going to go take your spot. And I'm like, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so in terms of that, yeah. But I mean, I've out of state friends last year, my kid on our team, Jack, uh, he sat in my number one hottest rut stand and we had hands down the second best hunting day of my life. And we sat together. He had the bow in his hand. I had the camera and it was absolutely awesome. So I still will take that core set of people depending on who it is right straight in. I'm talking my best stand that I have in this state right in. We sat in it. It was epic day. We didn't tag best day of hunting. I've ever had a white tail, not elk, but white tail. So when you say not selfish, I am at certain points. If I get the funky feeling, I may lose my spot to someone I don't want. But in terms of no, I'm, I'm really not. I mean, I'm taking guys. I got guys lined up all spring gobbler going to my best spots. Yeah. Come with me just to try to lay down some footage and knock down a gobbler. For I'm them. the same way. You, If you have a connection with the guy and you can tell that he's genuine, then you might help him out. But if it's that one buddy and he's already shooting monster deer and he wants to get in on your spot too, you're like, all right, whoa, buddy, you know. I mean, yeah, everybody's much. got the, like, like homie, he's been to my lease. We're really good friends, but he's never set my best stand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. you know yeah, I mean? yeah, yeah, so, yeah. We, we feel yeah. you there. We feel you there. So. Yeah. Well, I don't want to side. I will sidetrack the hell out of you guys this whole time. So <laughs> if you got the next part, I mean, we'll keep her moving because I, I, I'll sit on this topic in the next 50 minutes and nobody wants to hear about that crap. Well, I just want to touch on something that you kind of brushed over that I think is pretty respectable. Uh, you talked about making connections um, in this oh, industry. Yeah. 
uh, you know, you're putting in the work and you're using your person personality to make relationships to where, you know, you, like you said, you know, in 10 years, if you want to come hunt in Illinois, you're going to have somebody that's going to point you in the right direction. You're, yeah. you're putting in the work and, uh, instead of just using money to get the things that you need. And I think that's really respectable. That's something that people can, uh, take, take note of. For sure. And, and I'll, I'm, I won't sugarcoat anything at all. The speed in which we got from A to B with certain things definitely took money, I, hands down. Now, it didn't gain me any connections. It gave me no followers. But in six months to flop an entire marketing package together, logo designs, website, it took money whether you, you're talking handing over a dollar or, you know, I work. I have how much I make an hour. So I put 50 hours in a month to this. That's still worth money, technically speaking, because I'm not doing something else that I could be. So it did take money to get there. But I'll tell you right offhand, I have like, I don't know, 17 to 20 sponsor slash partnership contacts in my email, which these guys point blank will email me back and forth like it's your buddy. And they're not sponsoring us for nothing. They're not contacting us for nothing. They said point blank. We can't do nothing for you, but I love your stuff, and I just BS with them now about hunting. And it's like those contacts may never reap a single reward. And mind you, all these contacts are, are gear and stuff that we're already using. It's nothing that we're just shooting in the dark. It's all the gear I already own, I already use, my tree stands, my packs, everything. But I made connections with these guys. I mean, the one guy's out of Colorado. I've been talking to him about the area that I'm hunting where – I don't even want to hunt the area I'm going out this fall. I kind of want to go where he's telling me to, but we've already like, booked, we've already booked places to stay and so forth. And it's like, this guy owns a huge, huge outdoor company. And he's sitting here talking to me on a totally personal level. Cause he just loved what we're trying to do and the exposure that we're trying to get, which is kind of whitetail public land hunting. We do hunt private, but like we're really pushing that public land whitetail in states that we don't live in. And I made a great connection with a guy out of Colorado. He's awesome. And this dude's like a big, big name. And I don't feel comfortable like saying his name out loud just because you could go get his email for sure. And I don't want people bombarding him, but like he has, I'm a speck on the wall on his spectrum. And this guy just like, he'll answer me within an hour, almost every email. So it's stuff like that is like worth its weight in gold, you know? Yeah. We got, we got some guys that are just like that, that we, uh, we love doing, we love, you know, we love talking to you and, uh, I got, yeah. I'm, I'm real good friends with, with, uh, one of them personally. And, you know, I, we talk about deer hunting and he, he, he talks to homie about deer hunting and he's not a partner or anything, but we, we just like the guy. So it, it yeah. everybody, you know, podcasts, whether, whether they're a sponsor or not, we just, we just want to connect with people just like you do. That's kind of like yeah. me and me and homie were talking, we were sitting around, we were like, we want to do this podcast because. We want it to be a little bit different than a lot of podcasts, but we also want to we want to have stuff to do during the summer. You know, we want to go to events, but it's hard to yep. hard to find those events without getting connections like you're talking. You about. won't. Yeah, you'll never find them. And that's like the guys that I'm working with right now that we work with all of our marketing. Uh, me and Jack are looking to do like some pretty serious. We've been self filming and doing photography, and we're looking to do potentially. For our, because me and him are kind of calling of it our, our elk tour. We've got a rut hunt in September, and then we got another rifle hunt in Colorado. 
we're looking to maybe do it on more of a cinematic movie level where generally what we're going to be doing is 99.9% hunt films. You're, it's not movie level, but it's higher than like Walmart grade where it's a, it's a movie, but only about hunting, not a movie about kind of the atmosphere, like not Donnie Vincent level, but not your guy off the shelf that doesn't know what's happening. And it's five minutes. So like, we're talking about going the direction of maybe doing our elk tour this year, sort of along the lines more so of the Donnie Vincent, just for one, just to separate what we're doing. And we have a connect with a guy who hooked us up with three different film schools and five different kind of hunting film festivals, two of which we'd never heard of. And they're fairly big. No chance we ever, ever find those without knowing this guy through working with us on marketing. So it's like, those are connections. There's no, if we went to one of those small festivals, won something, we'd have never found it without knowing him, which we met him through DIY starting. So it's just like a totally vicious cycle. And, you know, I was just talking to Cameron on our team the other day. I said, the hunting world is not that big. It is a drop in the bucket. And my numbers might be just a hair off, but it's right around 14 million license sales in the entire country on top of that you've got almost 20 percent of that i'm assuming is in that 50 and over category if not more they don't do social media they don't do outdoor world they don't do they have no idea so you might be talking about our target market for your podcast diy hunter seven million people eight million people that's not a lot that's not a lot so you like you really think about us sitting here talking it's a small, small thing. So every time you pick up that guy that's kind of a big fish in a small pond, which is kind of us, to me, I'll never lose that connect. If it's an email once a month to tell the guy what's up, love their new photos, love something, I'll do that forever because it's like it's a small, small community. And if you get tied in enough, you just start finding stuff that just kind of self-propels you to get larger without you really having to do much about it. For sure, for sure. Yep. We're a, we're a, we, I love this. We could do, we could, we could have like a seven hour long podcast, <laughs> right? I, I love talking to you, man. You, 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 oh, yeah, I, you I, got the same, same kind of ideas on what we're doing as what you're doing, you know, where I think we're kind of same, kind of in it for the same reasons as connections yeah. and, and having fun and showing people that it can be done and getting stories out there. But, and I, I think seeing how people hunt differently than you and are still successful, yeah. Or hunt different parts of the country and can still get oh, it done. Oh, for sure. Yeah, that's why we oh, definitely want yeah. to come up, have you on because you guys are super successful and you're hunting all, you know, you're hunting three, four different states plus what you're traveling to. So that, that I mean, you guys have a wealth of knowledge that me and homie can't even touch, you know? So we want to get. Yeah, it. like. I, go, oh, ahead. go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was <laughs> just going to say, you're absolutely right. I got, I got two properties that are five hours apart and. The one I'll hunt a thousand to twelve hundred feet in elevation change, and the other one, the highest elevation change is a hundred foot. So you're talking not even in the ballpark of the same spectrum. Um, and then I'll go out to Jacks. Me and him grew up hunting twelve, fifteen hundred feet elevation changes. He's in Delaware hunting below sea level. He was like, "Do you understand how shitty it is to hunt in mud up to your knees in an entire state?" I was like, "No." And I'll never hunt with you because I don't want to do that. He's like, it is horrifying. He's like, I'm hunting deer with mud up to their bellies because it's so bad. I was like, wow. That blows my mind. Yeah. And then you got Cam, 
two more hours west of me and he's hunting all agriculture with not almost not a bump on the ground and we're not all that far apart but we're hunting that diverse of like i told him the other day about hunting acorns hunting acorns on acorns he was like you're nuts i've never hunted an acorn in my life where we're at he's like it's just not a thing and i was like there's no food where i'm at that's the only thing if acorns drop I will kill a buck in October, guaranteed. I was like, if they don't, like this year should be, it should be a non-producing mass year. I, I'm not going to hunt acorns. It's going to be a really rough fall in Pennsylvania, unless they somehow drop and I'm wrong. But to him, that's weird. He doesn't even know what it's like. And we live three and a half hours apart. So it's like, as a team, if we get together in a room, we could answer almost anything someone was asking again in our terms, which doesn't mean it's right or wrong. And it's definitely not the best opinion, but it's our version of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Can we, uh, can we call you out on the white tail legacy podcast saying that the acorns are not going to be a mass crop. Very good. In 2018. I don't where I'm at. I am very skeptical. They're going to be this year only because technically they're in every other year product and they'll, Two years ago, I had more than I could handle, and I got them again last year. I will be shocked if they come again this year. I hope to God I'm wrong, guys, because I need them bad. Yeah, I shot. I don't have ag- I don't have agriculture ten miles from where I hunt. So oh, I like, yeah. Yeah, that's got that's just insane. That that'll get into our next question. But I shot my buck this year, October fifteenth, on acorns. You know, he was oh, he was up them. an hour and a half before before uh-huh. dark. You know, eating acorns. So if you find a patch. I don't even care if it's five white oaks within bedding reach, sit right in between them. It's, I mean, it's kid to a candy store, as long as you know that he's in the area, obviously. And that's, again, a whole other topic in itself. Hunting big woods is, I think Wired to Hunt actually just did an entire podcast with a guy talking about hunting big timber, and it was an hour and a half. It's a completely, when they can bed on every knob, every point, every ridge, and eat on every knob, every point, every ridge, it's not something that's kind of sought after, which is why you don't hear a lot of people going after Pennsylvania buck. It's sort of a pain in the ass. Yeah, that's my, that's my next question is hunting the big woods and the hills of the east. So let's just roll right yeah. into that. You can uh, go into much depth as you want, but kind of just just kind of give us the challenges because we are flat. I got some valleys and, and you know some creek bottoms that are 200 foot on my lease, but you got some deep ones on your – Oh, yeah. yeah. You got some three, four hundreds on homies, but, but – you know ag fields are flat you know everybody knows that so that's where yeah. we're i don't hunt a lot of field edges but i don't have a lot of property that have field edges so i'm always in the timber which people think is crazy because they're always hunting like 50 yards i'm like 300 yards in the timber you know but yeah. i'm successful doing it so go into kind of go into how hunting out east what's the challenges of that because i know you've traveled to kind of the midwest and you know the difference yeah yeah i've hunted the midwest i've hunted you know, you've hunted Missouri or Iowa or Southern Illinois, Eastern Ohio. You've hunted them all, right? I mean, it's drainages out through the fields, agriculture, and fingers of woods. I, I don't want to say they're identical, and I'm not from them to say that, but I would say they're very, very close. Whereas in north central Pennsylvania, I could hunt upwards of 1,500-foot elevation change, and I could hunt south central Pennsylvania and hunt 200 feet elevation change. So our state as a whole is all over the map um i would say in terms of challenges one of the hardest things i would say just plain and simple is access entrance and exit because you're hunting 
giant ridge tops, fingers, valleys, and you don't have roads that are just in desolate areas to maybe get to that saddle on a ridge top, and you have to go through maybe a low valley or a switchback. And you guys know it's no different here than there. When them leaves drop in the fall, you're not doing it very quiet. So I would say access is hands down access routes, the hardest part. Everyone's like, oh, you can always access it. Come from a different finger. And I'm like, all right, boss, you ever done a 15-foot elevation scale, 1,500 foot with 40 pounds on your back and add an hour onto your morning? I was like, it ain't exactly sought after to hunt three days a week, you know? So I would say that's number one. And then number two, hands down, is they can bed anywhere, all the time, wherever they want, depending on the wind shifting. And an east wind versus a west wind might make them bed a thousand yards away on another ridge top. And you're like, son of a bitch. Because to get to it on foot is just night and day. So you're constantly running, gunning, and moving over and over and over. And you might bust them coming right through a bedding area because he bedded on that knob that day for the first time ever. And there's really no way to pattern that. I don't, there's going to be guys that are going to tell you they're patterning them. And I think they're full of crap because I've hunted around some amazing archery hunters in the quote unquote big woods here. And none of them can pattern them because they can lay wherever they want. When you have that much elevation, they can get on every knob and every nook. How do you pattern a deer that can just, cover ground twice as fast as a human and that wind shifts he jumps on the other side of a ridge and there you go he's gone so i think you can narrow it down for sure but i i don't know about truly patterning anything definitely not so you're saying that the that the doe bedding is not repetitive i wouldn't say it's repetitive the buck bedding i wouldn't say is repetitive enough to narrow it down to a specific wind and specific atmosphere to say he's gonna be right here because i might have a ridge that's i'm not kidding you guys a mile long and that deer can walk that ridge in what we humans can walk a mile in eight nine minutes that deer is going to cover the same thing and on any given day he might stop in a little switchback with an updraft that's got some dough in it and he's in two switchbacks over that me or you or homie ain't gonna walk to because we never thought of it because we hunted a different hollow that day, and it's 500 yards to the bottom of it. You just have so much surface area that they can lay on these knobs and these fingers. They can be 250 yards from you and never come onto your side, and it makes it real difficult because he might have 30 bedding spots instead of a finger of woods out into ag that you see him in four nights a week, and he's coming out of the same finger. He kind of bottlenecks him a little bit better, right? I don't think that makes it easier. I, I don't want to say that. It doesn't make it easier. But it bottlenecks where you're trying to focus. And when you're in big timber, like the property I grew up on, it's 300 acres and it borders 50,000 acres of state game land. They can literally cover so much turf. I have trail cams a mile apart on the same day that they're on them outside a rut. Like, how the hell you pattern that? Like, how do you know where he's going to be sitting? How do you know which knob he's on? You find a new rub line, throw a camera on it never pick up a deer and you find another rub line 1500 yards away and you're like son of a bitch i think he moved it it just it's so easy for them to get over little saddles and get into a whole nother thousand acres of timber they can just move so quick into new land there's no there's no bottlenecking if you go 30 mile radius and it's hardwoods every direction it doesn't take much for them to shift 
if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I, I, the way you're explaining this, I would never kill a deer there. <laughs> I, it would take me you, years. It would take me years to figure it out. You know, uh, uh, like you said, I, put it this way: I, I kill a lot more transient deer in Pennsylvania than I do where I hunt in Ohio. Yeah. I kill deer in Ohio, and I have a feeling where they're moving to and from because they're squeezed a little bit more. And I kill basically transient deer always. The last seven buck I killed in Pennsylvania on properties that I have cameras on every corner, I have one on camera out of seven. So that probably, does that make me lesser of a hunter? Guys will say, yeah, I, whatever. Say it all you want. I don't care. I still put arrows in the buck. There but you go. it's transient in terms of I kind of know they got to use an area because there's doe hanging in there. So I, since I was 12, me and my hunk, my uncle hunt doe. 100% hunt down in Pennsylvania because sooner or later, one of them will turn on and you're going to pull a buck off your property or a surrounding property because she got hot. So I do hunt transient buck. It is very hard for me. If you had a thousand acres you could control here, you can hold deer on your property for sure because the pressure is so bad in Pennsylvania. But I'm hunting 30 acre parcels, 20 acre parcels, public, I'm hunting transient pretty much all the time. So you're basically starting to narrow down and say, all right, you're lazy. I'm going to hunt saddles in the ridges and I'm going to hunt secondary ridge lines. which the YouTube video that I just threw up Pennsylvania scouting, I'm actually on a secondary ridge. And if you look at the video, it's like clear as day, 15 yards wide, a hundred yards down from the primary ridge. That's what the mature buckle stay on. So I do hunt those. But I hunt the doe. I'll be honest. I hunt doe all fall, just hoping to catch one of those buck hanging tight with them once late October starts rolling around. And I hunt acorns in October. So there's not a lot of science to it. It's just kind of being in the right area, you know? Yeah, we always say once you figure out what works, that's why people are like, well, I don't – like I'm a, I'm a big fan of people who are like, well, one stand might not be hot the next year. So they take them down. I'm a big stand, fan of leaving stands and seeing if they're going to be hot instead of pulling it in the winter and then hanging it. Cause the last three year, one stand has been on fire, but I want to hit on a couple yeah. points that you said was you said that it, you, it would be easier here. And I believe that is true. I, I mean, I'll say <laughs> no, right no, here no. on my own pockets. I no, said, honestly, I do. What you're saying. No, like, I, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> I said, I don't mean it to imply it's easier because yeah. I don't know that it is, or you guys would kill 150 inch deer here, you know? So it's not, they each have their own faults, but I wanted to make it, known it is easier i think out there hunting out there before to bottleneck at least an area that you know they have to use due to so much openness occurring out where you're at and where we're at there's so much cover they never have anywhere to bottleneck them maybe into a certain patch it's just constantly hardwoods that they can travel under the umbrella of security and that doesn't make one easier than the other it's just a different form of scouting yeah, I, I get you. I'm just, I'm just stating that I believe that's true because the bucks that I kill, I kill them in transition zones. That's my. If it's not, if it's not early October, and I'm deep in the timber on some acorns or right next to a bedding area, I kill them on transition zones where they're pinched down, downwind of doe bedding. That's that's yes. like my go-to here. Yes. Up there, if a you know I like on my properties, I know where the bucks bed. Almost all the time. No, not during the rut, I don't, because they are they get crazy Everywhere. and then I lose them. But uh, 
Early season, I have a very good idea where they bed. I know where the does bed all year round. I, I got that pinpointed. So it, I guess out there if the does can fluctuate and, the, like you said, the winds and the hills, that's something I, you know, like I, if I hunt, if I hunt my, you know, my 300, 200 foot deep creek bottom here, the wind's swirling, and I'm like, I gotta get out of here and get, you know, get up yeah, somewhere. Where. So hunting there the would be so. And, and, yeah, and and, and I, me and Cam, we've had this discussion. I, like, I can't tell you how many times to the point where we almost started getting heated back and forth on our opinions on it. You have to hunt thermals here, which to him, he knows of them because he's hunted Kentucky a lot. But you're still talking 200 foot elevation change and first light a half hour after sunup, that thermal's gone. It's all the way to the top. It's forget it. It's out of the way. When you're hunting 1500 foot elevation, I, I'm telling you, you that thermal is going to make its way up that hill till 11 in the morning. You've got a couple hour window and then it's flipping back around and it's shoving it back down the hollow. So you're making changes on an all day sit twice. You're sitting in the morning and sitting versus the evening. And then, you might have a dominant wind that's westward, which goes against the grain from the evening thermal. You're kind of trying to find that, I call it sort of a wind funnel, where the thermals meet in the dominant wind, and it sort of just swirls, like you said, like a vacuum. And generally, it's on one of those secondary benches, and you got to get on the downward side of it or you're screwed. And sometimes, I'll be honest, I just say hell with it, and I hunt it no matter what, just because. But it's it's a freaking pain in the ass. No joke. Yeah, I can believe it. We hunt... I hunt a lot of them second secondary ridges here, but they're not they don't fluctuate as much as yours. But I have noticed that too that the bucks they don't like to run the top of the ridge unless no. it's during the rut. They like to be three quarters of the way down on that yep. that secondary ridge, and that's what they like to do. It kind of funnels yeah. them down. So we we kind of have that here, but the top and the secondary might be a hundred yards apart. Uh, you know, yeah, so. yeah. And in general, here the only freaking simple thing that helps with those secondary ridges is he's going to run the secondary ridge with the wind coming off the top of the hill at his back. And he's going to watch below him. That's, that's what they do here. So I do know they do that. Now they'll do that in the morning with a wind off their back with the thermal coming up the hill. And they're actually smelling from behind them and below them and using their eyes below them. That's when it gets really difficult to get in on a mature deer. You got to hope your scent control's working and you're higher than what his wind catches you and he happens to cross you right when you're already throwing an arrow. So, again, no, I don't want any of that to make it sound like it's any more difficult than anywhere else. No, that's just the shit that we deal with. Like, they can eat anywhere. And another thing, what if you have 10 acres, 10 different patches of white oak? They'll pick through the ones that drop first, and boop, they'll move their way into new doe bedding, new buck bedding, and they're on a whole other spot because there's acorns elsewhere. And they'll just migrate around until that's all gone. So it's and they eat, I think I read, Whitetail Institute, 155 types of greens. So we have undergrowth and briars. And I'll watch them sit there and eat that stuff all night. And when that underbrush is everywhere, they just transiently bed. So when you're saying, like, I know the doe bedding, I struggle finding that because I jump doe all year from different spots that I've never seen them. So they'll just sort of flop down with a dominant wind, and there they go. That's where they lay for the night. So it makes it. The transient transition zones are super, super tough, like super tough to find. Yeah, I can understand that. Just the way you're describing yeah. it, it's just that that blo- it blows up. my mind. How I mean, I know you keep saying it it's sucks. not any different, but man, that is tough. The amount of it work sucks. that you're 
I mean, I think I put in a lot of work and I do a lot of stand hours, but you're doing two, you're moving your stand twice in a day. You know, if I'm in my stand, I'm in there for the duration. I'm not packing in a thousand yards uphill, (laughs) you know, if we have 20 degrees to 50 degrees on a day, I have to shift because then at night with our mountains, the temperature will drop so bad that thermal, you'll actually feel it when the sun crests the hill hits you square in the back, freezing cold air, and it's going to push your scent dead straight back down that hill. But if you don't get down below where you think he's going to transition through, they're going to walk right into it and you're never going to see them. So you you actually don't have a choice. It's either do it or you're going to get busted. So it's it's a big deal. Now, the only thing that helps is when you have a really heavy prevailing wind going one way or the other with the thermal. So you can almost make your stand set up once and be good for the day. Now, if they're opposite, you're in a lot of trouble. You got to move. And I mean, you don't have to move, but if he comes in from the way you're banking on, then you're going to get busted. Yeah. I just want to go back. (laughs) No, I was just wanting to go back to uh, what you're talking about with them deer walking on them ridges. Um, So, you know, I've heard on a north and south ridge, the deer is going to be on the east side of the hill if, you know, the wind's coming out of northwest. Uh, My question is, if have you seen the wind determine which side of the the ridge that these deer are going to walk on? Like, is he going to be on the east side that way northwest wind? It's coming in his face and coming up the ridge to him. That way he can smell basically what's on the side of the ridge that he can't see, and then he can see the bottom on the east side of the ridge that he's walking on. Okay, so I'll I, – I, I, yes, I agree with what you're saying, but I, I think you just – I think you flipped, flipped what you were saying. So to make it easy for everybody, if we have a north and south-facing ridge, meaning the ridge runs from 12 to 6, right? Correct. And if we have, let's just make it real basic. If we have a prevailing wind from the west that day, meaning blowing from nine o'clock to three o'clock, right? He's going to tend to run that ridge on the three o'clock side. Yes. And he's going to walk, run it with the wind to over the top down to him, watching to the three o'clock side. So yeah, I think you said it correctly. I just was misinterpreting. Yeah. And yeah. I, he's also going to bet on that side as well. That way the so, wind is still blowing to where he can smell the side that he can't see. He's completely protected, and he can bust out from anything behind him. And generally when they're trying to – what I find, when they're winding to rut, to meet, they tend to start – I notice them betting on a little bit more open knobs because then they really, really can watch behind them, not only for protection, but those doe tend to run the ridge tops. They can smell the doe behind them if they hear something as well, but they're also watching out in front of them. So they'll be right on the very, very edge of that secondary ridge to the point where, I mean, like, they're on it where it's falling down over, and they'll just lay there and watch. I've watched them do it out of my tree stand because I'll sit below that secondary ridge 30 feet so that he's still not at eye level, and they'll come right below me and sit down and they never look behind them once because they don't have to. They can smell better than they can see by a landslide. So they're wa- they're smelling behind, watching in front. So to restate that, a north and south ridge, if the wind's coming from the east to the west, they're going to run the ridge on the western side with the wind coming over the top to them, watching below them. And basically, you make that diagram, switch it any way you want. If there's, let's, let's say there's a south south southeast wind 
you can almost stay off of a north-south facing ridge. You're going to want to find a east-west facing ridge because they're going to move all the way over to get on one of those. Yeah, yeah, you know, exactly the scenario we're talking about here is something that I heard earlier. Well, it had been early season last year, and, you know, I'm just trying to run this idea by everybody that I've, you know, come into contact with just to see how it matches up, you know, from place to place, spot to spot. I'm I'm thinking I'm thinking that you're probably going to get every person say the same thing. If they don't, I'll, I'll confidently tell you they're wrong. <laughs> that is the only thing if i've learned anything from whitetail hunting with these huge hills and mountains whatever you want to call it it's it's that that's that's a guarantee that's going to happen pretty much everywhere and I, right. I think where you guys are at that probably applies as well i would assume even with the low lying hills yeah yeah but I, it, it does here yeah I've, I've noticed that they they tend to run just right over the edge where they can hit the top and the other side and see the bottom. I think we got time for a couple more questions. So I really, I watched a YouTube video of you guys on your pack-in hunts, and I know that you do a lot of them. So I'd kind of like to go over kind of what is your go-to setup gear-wise for your pack-in hunts. Wait, say that again one more time. So I, I watched your YouTube video on your pack-in yeah. hunts. And yeah. I kind of wanted to go into your gear that you use because I, I think you really described that good, and I really like how you set up to get in. Um, so I kind of wanted to go over what what gear you use and what what is the best gear for someone to buy that wants to go into packing hunts like that. Okay, so first off, hands down, I I would run I would run a climber. So I have a lone wolf climber, and it weighs fourteen pounds. The second time I'm going to an area, I will use that if I know which trees I'm using and I can get into it. The first time I go into areas, I always take uh, kind of a running gun setup. So your your hang on and your sticks, right? I have a I have a Millennium hang on which is like 11 pounds, and then I run Lone Wolf sticks because they're the lightest stick on the market. So they're the 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 lightest ones I can possibly buy. And then I actually made a mounting system to where I can mount them. I can rig them right to the back of my hang-on. And then I have a Western backpack, which if I didn't hunt out West, but I run and gun whitetail, I would probably buy this to hunt whitetail. So anything with a meat shelf that you could take out West for packing in and out, I take that stand and those sticks, I actually open my meat shelf, and I drop the stand and sticks down in there. And then I still have enough room in my bag for my filming gear, strap the bow to the back, but with that back support from the external frame. So I did run a Puyu pack, but I'm going to be running the Sika Western pack, which comes out in May. They're all interchangeable. EXO makes unbelievable packs. All these packs, now they are expensive, but to me, to get that weight resistance, to be able to pack that on my back and not even feel it and hike a mile to a mile and a half, it's almost a necessity, right? Like you can't dog yourself and then have a 12 hour sit. You'll never make it. So I would say for like the run and gun style type stuff, definitely a lock on and sticks until you get really familiar with an area. Cause it's going to be the only way you can pick which tree you want to sit in, not the tree picking you because sometimes 20 yards is going to make a giant difference. And if you bring a climber and you can't get in a tree, you got to kind of bend over backwards to the forest. And I don't like that feeling. So the sticks in the hang-on add 14 pounds. 
But I'm like, you know, that's why I work out 12 months a year based on being able to get in and out of these places and not be tired because I don't want to have to reduce weight to the point where I'm not a big, like, I don't want to do a tree sling. I don't want to bring two sticks and unsafely get up the tree just trying to save five pounds. So to me, I'm like, I'd rather stay in shape and then be able to do it versus the other way around. But uh, I do run a Millennium Hang-On. I have a Lone Wolf Hang-On. I have Lone Wolf Climbing Sticks. They're the lightest ones on the market. And to be honest, all the climbing sticks out there are almost identical. So I figure might as well shave weight. They're all priced about the same. And then uh, I have a Lone Wolf Climber for the same reason. It's 14 pounds. So I'm all about weight and function. And the Lone Wolf and the Millenniums are pretty awesome because they don't have a lot of welding seals. And they make no noise. It could be zero degrees with wind. And my stand doesn't creak doesn't make any noise nothing there's there's no contact with it with the aluminum so that's pretty much the reasons i went with those we're not paid to use them we don't get them sponsored i just swear by them going through all the tree stands i've had summits i've had muddies i feel like i've ran through all of them and i just kind of settle on these ones due to noise and weight if that makes sense yeah that's that's one thing that i wanted you to touch on that youtube video that backpack from the midwest i do some running guns uh Kind of, I guess they're called running guns. Very <laughs> seldom, maybe three, four times a year on public ground. Um, when I I spot glass from a distance and I get on a buck, I almost almost was successful this year, sixty five yards. Uh, but I, that was a that was a running gun set, and uh, I really like that backpack. And a guy from the Midwest that isn't used to like that a meat shelf being a normal thing, I didn't even really know that you could do that with with that backpack until I watched that video. So. Oh, I don't, so thanks I don't for putting that video seen. out, man. I really that was yeah. informational to me because then I looked at them backpacks. I'm like, man, if I'm going to serious get in, because one of the things I keep on saying but I don't do is I want to get back into hunting the public around here and shooting deer on it. But the way to do it is to move stands like you do, you know, and put the work in. And that's something I'm eventually going to do. Is just one year I'm just going to dedicate myself to state ground, and well, that that backpack and- is. It, it, that's what I need to do it because that thing is killer, dude. Well, and you know, you get the right companies like EXO, um, Kuyu. They make a, even a smaller version that I think would be geared to whitetail even better. I just happen to have packs that they got to be able to hold all my gear for 10 days when I go on a Western hunt to live in the middle of freaking woods. So it's like I convert it to use it for whitetail. But I mean, to be honest, once I put my my layering system in there, my food for the day, my camera gear, my tree arms, it fills up really, really fast. And to have that external support, like the, the Kuyu bag I had, I think was like six pounds. The Sika one's like maybe five and a half. So as big as it is, you're not really adding any weight from the pack. But then to put on the harness system and the belt system and the weight distribution you almost lose that much weight just from it fitting you right it's like worth its weight in gold and if you got like a like an exo pack and got like an 1800 inch one it would be like the greatest whitetail pack and then they have the meat shelf they're not built for it but that's what i use them for these packs are built for big game in and out but i'm like well a big game quarter is 80 pounds and i got 50 pounds of gear why the hell not so i just kind of converted it yeah, I get you there. Yeah, that that backpack is sweet, and, and it does work. I can tell that it does work. So, 
I think we got time for one more question, and I really want to uh, touch on kind of just so people can have something to get a story and then go to YouTube and watch. Kind of just do a short story on the buck in Ohio that you have uh, self-filmed kill because I've tried to self-film very rookie, very terrible, and I think you did a very good job on that. So I, I'd like you to just kind of give them a little bit of sample and then they can go to YouTube and get the full story. Yeah, you got to screw it up for quite a few years until you get one that kind of comes to fruition. It's not – I'll tell you right now, self-filming isn't fun – but after it finishes and you put a product together, it is the most addictive thing in the world. And it is awesome to watch footage that you never even remembered happen because you filmed it and you looked at it a year later and you're like, oh, my God, I totally forgot about that. And you kind of kind of get hooked on it, honestly. It makes it very, very addictive because it's it adds another aspect that not a lot of guys do. And when you pull it off, a lot of guys look at it and they're like, how did you turn on your GoPro and a camera, draw your bow, move the camera with your leg, pull off the shot, film <laughs> it? It's like, it's really cool. And if you guys saw my video, the damn GoPro died again. I, that, and things die worse than anything I've ever seen. That's the third deer I killed without the camera turning on. But um, I guess that deer itself, I was on that thing for three weekends in a row, honestly. And uh, I had scouted and moved stands more days so I was hunting Friday, Saturday, Sundays, and I didn't know he was there specifically. I just knew a deer was there specifically that I really wanted to kill. And I had heard him grunting, which later I knew it was him because the same grunt three weeks later, you can hear it on the video. He's coming up the hollow, and it was the exact same grunt. So three weeks prior, I had hunted Friday, Saturday, scouted and moved to stand Sunday. The following weekend, I hunted Friday scouted Saturday, set stand Sunday, and left. Then the following weekend was this weekend I had tagged him. I jumped him off the ridge going to hang a stand on Friday morning at about 9 o'clock. I worked on Thursday till 8 o'clock, drove four hours, slept, woke up, drove up on the hill. I wanted to go in after first light to try to not bust. It's a morning travel corridor, so I was letting everything get through there so that I could get up. And to be honest, I was so tired, I thought, if I sleep in, I can do an all-day sit. If I go up there at 5 a.m., I'm never going to make it. So I went up. I'm walking this ridge line where I'd moved this stand to the week before. And I was like, I got to move this thing like 75 yards up this ridge based on this wind today. And I was walking out the ridge, pull my camera card. I turned around. He's at 80 yards staring at me, has no idea what I am. And we just watched each other for 15 seconds. He doesn't blow, and he runs down into the hollow off the property. I hear him cross the gravel road, and I can hear him going up the other side. And I was like, well, that's sucky. I don't know what the hell I'm going to do now. So I figured, all right, I've killed a deer before coming right back to where I right back to where I jumped him out. So I threw my stand set up. I threw all the sticks up, climbed up, hung it, turned the camera back on, climbed up, checked the camera card. Holy puss balls. There he was on it. Two nights in a row, hammering his scrapes that I'm sitting on. I was like, all right, well, he's coming through here, so I'm going to sit. And I proceeded to see, I think, 21 deer that day, seven or eight buck. I passed a shooter at like, well, not a shooter to a lot, and I'm glad I passed him, but he had a bunch of busted tines. He, he was only a seven point, but he would have been a nine, but he had two broken tines. I passed him at five yards, 
hitting a straight below me. I had another buck come in that I that is actually on that film. He hit that scrape. I had doe everywhere. I had coyote coyotes. It was just like an epic day of hunting whitetail, and it was 15 degrees. And I actually just listened to another podcast about a guy hunting out of Columbus that tagged the same day I did, and he said it was the coldest day he ever hunted in his life. And I kind of laughed. I was like, wow, I'm from northern Pennsylvania. It wasn't the coldest day, but it was terrible. It was probably zero with the wind, I would say. And I did the whole day on Friday. Saturday morning, I wake up, and I was like, I'm going to smoke that freaking buck today. He's going to come down this ridge. Every two days, he was hitting his camera. I don't think I spooked him. I think I'm going to, he's going to get pushed right to me. Got up in my tree. I'm setting up. Here comes coyotes right down the ridge and my bow's on the ground. I'm wheeling it up as fast as I can. I can't get it up. They go running by. I'm like, son of a bitch. All right. I, didn't, I would have loved to crush a coyote. No big deal. Get the camera set up. Here comes a whole flock of turkeys. I'm like, oh, I'm going to smoke a freaking gobbler. This is going to be sick. All right. <laughs> They veer off at like 80 yards, and I'm debating taking a shot because, like, I'm totally comfortable shooting 80 yards all night. It wouldn't bother me in the least bit. I'm like, nah, it's going to make my bowstring's going to snap. It's like 15 degrees. You're going to hear it from a mile. I'm going to pass on those turkeys. Never mind. I'll let them go. It's like 7.30. Dead silent. Not a deer. 8.30. Not a deer. 9 o'clock. I hear something rustling. I stood up my tree stand. I'm facing the other way to take a piss. I'm looking, I'm like, oh, there's a couple doe. I'm going to the bathroom right on the leaves, you know. It sounds like ice bombs dropping because it's so cold out. They're looking at me at about 120 yards. And oddly enough, they're below where I moved this stand from out of shooting range. So had I left it the weekend before, they're at like 70 yards through trees. I never could have shot at these doe. And, but they're on their way right to me to cross this saddle I'm sitting in. And they kind of keep making their way and making their way. They end up in the only freaking shooting lane to the west I have that's like 10 yards wide. And they stop and all three of them pivot. And I went, well, I've seen this scenario before. And on the film, you can hear it. And if Jack listens to this, I hope he hears this because I'm freaking pissed. He <laughs> cut down He cut down this, the, the scene with the buck coming in and missed a whole bunch of grunts. But you could hear him from probably, I'm guessing, 200 yards just, and he was just coming and coming. And those, you watch the video, the doe just stood there. And from the time he shows up in that video to me shooting is all the time that I saw him to my naked eye. So I was really happy just to get the shot off. Because if you stop watch it, he shows up in frame. It's under five seconds to when my arrow left my bow. So a lot of things kind of came to fruition that I got lucky on, but a lot were like, I think timing and just that gut feeling to set up in a certain spot, you know, put your tree stand a certain angle and it all kind of just <coughs> bottlenecked and came together. But the way the doe were acting, one of the big things was self-filming. I'll probably have 10 hours of footage because you never know when something's going to snap off. And if the camera's already on, you're already one step ahead to make sure that you got it in frame. So I film a lot of junk, but you just never know when something's going to show up, you know? And that was a perfect situation. I already had the camera rolling for two minutes on these dough, A, to practice, and B, just to have some footage. And I heard that grunt start dumping. And I immediately went to filming with one hand and holding the bow with the other because if you heard the sound on the video, 
it's not a two and a half year old buck coming in. Like they just, they don't sound like that, that bellowing barrel chested type throaty stuff. That's not a small buck. So I got all the stuff shut, turned on GoPro got a solid 15 seconds of me before it died. So that was cute. <laughs> and, uh, and I just kind of filmed from there. And I think the big thing we're trying to do is capture the step-by-step of like how you're feeling and what you're watching. So people can also see like, getting worked up and watching it and what do you do next it's really kind of captured in film and i had a lot of people comment on youtube that were like very hateful about oh it's stupid i don't know why you did that man and, you know and then you go onto their social media and like i don't know if they've ever even killed a deer so to each their own i think the general consensus so 80 percent of people that watch how we're doing it they're going to be like oh man i do it the same way but uh as far as self-filming we've been talking about how to do a YouTube on like how we do and what we do it. And hands down, it's just doing it a million times, you know, filming 150 different deer that come in. It don't matter. You eventually becomes habit. When you hear that grunt, your hands already reaching over and turning on your camera, just completely instinctive versus thinking you're just going to start filming. And I'm going to shoot a huge buck on film. It's like, no, cause the hunter in your brain takes over immediately. And your cameraman version gets squashed and you're like, hell with that. Push the camera right out of the way. I ain't forget it. So it's really hard to want to do that first. And I think that just takes time and doing it and doing it and doing it. Not that I'm a pro at it, but like getting better. We're putting better videos together for sure. Yeah, self-filming is is tough. Uh, I gave Cody my camera and he's been tinkering with my film from this year and I've thought about all the deer that I've shot with a bow, and I think all of them but one or two, I was like, yeah, I could have got it on film. And then, you know, I get out there this year with a camera, and I'm just like, holy hell, this is this is tough. It's really hard. And, like, you're picking, you're picking what angle of the tree to hang off so you can film. You're yeah. like, damn. Like, I don't even want to – I don't want to hang this way, but the whole, damn, whole idea behind this is putting this on film, so I can't exactly not film it. So you kind of like resituate and how high is the camera arm? Is it going to stick out if he's coming from here or coming from there? That's all just an experience thing. I like, and, and Cam's going to start really getting heavy on our team into filming. And I told him this year, this fall, as soon as September one hits or October one in Ohio, just start pummeling dough on camera left and right, just to get practice at it. Try to buy five years experience by shooting four or five dough, you know, and then go to Kentucky, shoot four or five, like, just do it, just do it. And you get better at it quick, but it's like anything. There's a skill to it and a knack. What camera do you want? How do you want to do it? But we don't intricately overthink it. I buy a 1080p video camera. It doesn't have a million X zoom. It does pretty good in low light. I throw it on the camera arm and there you go. Now I upgraded my fluid head, like slowly upgrading pieces to make it easier on me. But the hardest part is to shut off the hunter in your brain and turn on the cameraman once you're in the situation, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, it definitely does to us, uh, we, you know, since we started filming this year. I just want to go back to uh, Jack. He better listen to this podcast. And two, <laughs> there's nothing that we can do about his shit editing job. <laughs> right? I'm telling you, I called him and I go, first off, great Great movie, great music. I love it. Second, where the fuck are all the buck runs that I had on film? He wasn't. Nobody wants to watch a bunch of does stand there for three minutes. I went. I do. He's like, well, sorry, you're not our viewers. I was like, 
God dang it, man. <laughs> and then that, that, that buck was coming in for a pretty while. So like I could hear him coming and stop and grunting and coming and stop. And those doe, if you watch the video, they just stand there. They were locked on him from all the way at the bottom of the hollow. So he cut a little out, but in his defense, can't put out a 40 minute video, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I hear that. Uh, also going back to, you know, you said that it was probably felt like zero degrees out while you, uh, shot your deer. Um, I know Cody and I, we both like to get out there when it's unfavorable, favorable conditions, because when you do get a tag on a deer, it makes it just that much sweeter that you feel like you really, really earned it. You know, you put in the work and then you went out there when, you know, conditions might not have been, you know, you're not fair weather hunter. You got out there when you needed to be out there and then you got it done and it just makes everything a lot better. Well, it was horrible. It was like November 10th or 11th. Like, that's another thing. You hear guys talk about hunts from five years ago and they'll tell you the date and the, I have no idea. It was somewhere in November, but the story, I could tell a story minute by minute from Friday morning to when I tagged on Saturday until when I found the deer. I don't know dates and stuff. I know it was in the middle of November. So you're talking prime rut in Ohio. And I, I know I had multiple friends all leave the woods by 10 and they said there's no way they could sit because it was so cold. And to be honest, I run a lot of really high-end base layer, wind stopper gear. I bundle up because to me, my hunt would be ruined with improper gear. So if I can afford and work hard enough to have the gear to buy me the time, I'll do it. Because to sit there and freeze is not fun. That's not enjoyable. I'd rather be home or drinking beers with my buddies than freeze. But if it's prime time and I got to sit out there and I can make it more comfortable, I definitely definitely do i definitely will in a heartbeat so i'm with you like you you got two weeks maybe of that peak rut like you got to be out there yeah that's the same way here we we i i'm gonna do homies thing he just takes two whole weeks off during the rut he he doesn't take one vacation day and then he just takes two weeks off but i'm gonna take one week and i told my wife i'm hunting every day sun up to sundown whether it's public private i don't care i'm going in hardcore this year let's go yeah and I'm not. I, and every year I'm like, I'm gonna do this, and then I shoot a buck early, and then I lose motivation. This year, I don't care if I shoot a giant. October fifteenth, I'm going in, balls to the wall this year and during the rut. That's awesome. Because I just want to put, like you said, I want to put stand time in. I want to get the memories. I want to learn. You know, the more time you're in the woods, the more you learn your property oh. or a certain piece. And if you can put a weekend during the rut, and then you say, okay, during this day they were doing this. Then next year you have a pretty good idea. You know, Absolutely. Of, of that area, what they're going to be doing. So I agree with the, you. On the, that. Ridge, the ridge that I killed this buck on this year, if I still have access to this property this year, I two years in a row now have watched this funnel that I sat 95 yards away from and I've never hunted because I thought it was off the property. And this past summer, I started running Onyx everywhere. Come to find out, it's well within the beyond the limits of the property. I will guaranteed have a stand there in November next year. And I will, if I'm not tagged out in October off public into the rut, I'll probably move because I'm public and rut in Ohio is not really enthusiastically sounding to me because everybody and their brother turns into archery hunter and shows up. So if I'm not tagged out on public, I'll probably move back to private. But like you said, the amount of hours and hours I've sat on this ridgeline and watched this little funnel down below me on this bench 
I didn't know it was on the property. I guarantee I kill a buck on it. In 2018, if I get to November without having a tag filled yet in Ohio, because in two years, the amount of buck I've seen run on it is like almost sickeningly large over and over. And I don't know why I've walked it. There's nothing there. There's nothing there, but there's got to be bedding on the adjoining property that they're pushing these dough out of and running this bench because they're on it over and over and over. It's crazy. That's exactly like my spot. There, One of my stands, there's no ground scrapes, no tree scrapes, no really even trails. It's like the nope. thickest undergrowth you could find. And every every year I see monster deer there because they're bumping uh-huh. does. They're hitting the downwind side on my property from the doe bedding on the neighbors. So, yep. you know, they're hitting it 100 yards downwind, you know. And, and every year, people come on there, and they're like, man, what what is this stand? I'm like, oh, this is my best stand. <laughs> they're like, there's a yeah. buck sign 400 yards from this. Well, they're not there early. They're only there during the rut. So, Yep, absolutely. I don't see a deer down there in the entire season, ever. And it just shows up. That's why I sat this year. I saw 25 or 27 deer in two days right on that ridge. And I bet if I went back the next weekend, same thing. Well, Preston, before we wrap this thing up and tell the people where they can find you, uh, I was looking through your Facebook page the other day, and I noticed, I don't think it was you, it might have been Cameron or Jack posted a picture, just kicking back, relaxing, sipping on a beer. That's Jack. He's in in like the Cayman Islands or something, fishing for, I don't even know, some fish you've never heard of that's like giant. <laughs> I want to know, yeah. when you shoot a monster buck, are you going to celebrate with some liquor or are you celebrating with beer? And what, what kind? So, when we're out west, we have our trophy, we have our elk flasks. Me and Jack, Jack has bourbon and I have whiskey. When I'm in Pennsylvania, Ohio, and I smoke one, generally at the camper, I always have beer. I have whatever kind I stopped and bought and really fucking cold, and I put it in a cooler. <laughs> right on. That's my favorite kind. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Whatever it's the coldest and, and yeah. available. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm more of a, a numbers guy. I, I mean, I'll drink a Heinz 57 pack if you give it to me. I'm not a real picky. Just don't, just don't give me the IPAs and the bitter crap. I don't want that. Hell, yeah. Well, we – uh. I, this is one of the funnest podcasts I've had, yeah, man. You guys, you awesome. are a trip, dude. So, He's pumped all the time. Yeah. So uh, let yeah. let the people know where they can find you, YouTube, Instagram, stuff like that. And because uh, if people are listening to this, man, you want to follow this guy because he, you can. One of my biggest thing, like I said, is personality. And if you're passionate about something, I can tell right off the bat. If you're a fair weather hunter, or you're like, oh, I'm kind of into this, I can tell. But I can tell that you are passionate and 100 percent into this. So you're someone that I want to follow. And five years from now, I'll be like, holy shit, look at Preston, dude. He's a baller. <laughs> you know, so. I, like, obviously, that would be a total dream. But, like, uh, me and Jack talk about that a lot, even, like, Cam. I mean, he's, he's like, so three months ago, Cam was full-blown, 100%, whitetail only. I'll never miss a day of whitetail, this and that. Fast forward three months. He's already buying preference points to elk hunt with us. We might be doing an Alaska blacktail hunt next year. He's talking about going for mule deer in the middle of whitetail season. Just because of the stuff we're telling him, he's already 27 years old, 26, switching his outlook on, like, hunting versus hunting deer, if that makes sense. And and 
kind of what we're trying to press is like, if you're really a hunter, try other things because you don't know what's going to catch your eye. Like, I would forfeit whitetail hunting forever to hunt elk the rest of my life based on experiences I've had in elk. And it doesn't make one more than the other, but it made me find a whole other passion that I'm not experienced in that's going to be fun the next 30 years to get good at and turn into, like, that resource. They're like, how are you in Pittsburgh and killing elk every season? What the hell are you doing? Like, those are goals I have, you know? So I think, like you guys said, the fair-weathered hunter, I got a buddy, he loves archery hunting, and I said, here's how much it's going to cost. 2021 we're going here's what you gotta buy out the door it's this much money you do very well financially you want to go uh, i don't know it just doesn't i'm like you're done you're not going then forget it like <laughs> yeah you have the easiest sell in the world like here's how much it is you got three years to sell to buy it but he just didn't want it that's what i would call a fair weathered hunter he's he's an archery hunter if you talk to him but then in reality a little bit of rain a little bit of wind he's gonna be at the house like that don't count to me that's not there's nothing wrong with that. We need more hunters. Like our, our license sales keep going down every yeah. year. Like that's not good. If you talk to a hunter that's like, <sighs> ah, whatever. I don't know how, I don't really care if I'm polite about it. You talk to the hunter that's not doing it for the right reasons. That's why that's a good thing. Cause maybe then that's going to make it easier to hunt. But in reality, it's not, it's going to end up losing us properties and being able to do things. And our laws are going to change for the worse. So, any exposure is good exposure. So if that's me talking on these podcasts about it and get some 12-year-old amped up, hey, power to him. <laughs> yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> you know? But it, it is fun. It is fun. I'm just looking in the next 10 years to make those connections where I can bring a guy's kid out that wants to hunt, but he doesn't know how to hunt. Yeah. And I can say, well, Dad, you ain't coming, but I'm going to take Jimmy and we're going out. We're going to kill a turkey. We're going to kill so on and so forth. Well, Spurs props to you, man. To yeah. Hunt in the West, that type of stuff. Yeah, I'm I'm in for anybody getting out there and doing it. We're we're big on this podcast. Our kind of our trademark we're trying to leave is leave a legacy. That's kind of how our name started because we we both got kids, and that's kind of what we're trying to instill in our kids. But um, back to back to the question. I know we're really good at going off on tangents, on <laughs> but uh, YouTube. You have no idea. YouTube, Instagram. Yeah. You're you're at DIY Hunter on YouTube, right? Yep. And then Facebook, I think, I think it's DIY Hunter 17, and that's just the year we established. But I think, so I just started working on Facebook like a month or two ago. We weren't doing it at all because I'm sure you guys know Facebook sucks. But it's part of the mix, so I've been working on it. So Facebook, I think if you type DIY Hunter in, it comes up, but I, I really don't know. Yeah, and that's, then how YouTube, I, that's how I found you guys, DIY okay. Hunter. Okay, because I think we have just enough following that it actually puts it at the top because there's not a lot of DIY Hunter on there. And then YouTube is just DIY Hunter, and DIY Sportsman will come up first, which is another site that's awesome. But you'll see our DIY Hunter, like our American flag logo. And then our website is DIY-Hunter.com. So they're all basically the same thing, just interchangeable. And then we got Twitter, but I don't know how the hell it tweets, so I just linked it to Instagram. So hey, it's the same stuff. So if you got one or the other, it's the same exact content. But uh, yeah, we got Twitter too, and I'm like, what? <laughs> we we were still yeah. trying to figure that out, dude. I was yeah, way ahead. Yeah, yeah. I'm almost 33. I'm not gonna figure it out. I think it's past me. I'm like, what? 
I tweet sometimes. I'm like, man, I don't even know what I'm doing, but yeah. I'm getting followers. So. <laughs> I'm, I'm dialed in on Instagram and Facebook, and I've got a personal Twitter, and then we got the Whitetail Legacy Twitter, and Cody's kind of taking the forefront of the Twitter, and I I get on there, and it it's just too busy for me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I'm the tech no, guy. I don't get it. Yeah, I don't get it at all. I mean, we're, we're solely driving towards – the YouTube platform as being our main avenue. But in the long term, once we get kind of the forum going on our website, we're going to try to start bottlenecking stuff back to our website. But YouTube's really the driving content we're trying to go after just because, you know, you get something laid out on a video, you can get so much more across in a five-minute video than a picture. Oh, yeah. I would say just just watching a couple of videos that I've watched, uh, you know, just like we said at the beginning of this podcast, your energy and you guys just out, you know, the one I watched, you guys were walking around Ohio public land. Like, who yeah. really wants to watch that? But with the way that you were putting it together, I'm like, I watched a whole eight-minute video. You're just well, walking around the thing. woods. One of the things we're trying, the biggest thing is to get viewer-driven content to tell us, like, hey, what didn't we cover in this video that we can do in the next one because to us it might be second nature that we don't know we bypassed it. We're trying to put out what we think people would want to see, but we don't know. And I'll be honest, I'm not very camera shy. I try to stay in front of it because it's loud, it's in your face, and it tends to hold your attention pretty well. Not that the other guys aren't. I just know I am because I talk, you know, I work with people every day and you kind of got to be uplifting and happy, and that's just kind of my personality. So to watch it makes it easier to watch because you're not listening to details. You're listening to the person, I guess. Yeah, right on, man. That's Like I said, your personality it sells it for you guys. So we, uh, we're about an hour and 15 minutes deep into this without an intro, so we're, uh, we're going we're gonna to wrap it up. If there's one thing that you could tell the listeners out there, uh, what, what would it be? You know, you'd think every time I get this question, I'd come up with something to say that was catchphrasy. And I got nothing. Every time someone asks me this, I'm like, <laughs> I don't know. Um, the number one thing, I, you know, I don't know. Guys, that's tough. I, honestly, I would say like anything else in, in life. I mean, I played sports growing up. I played sports in college, own little businesses. I don't care who you are. You're always competing in life, whether it's against yourself or against other people. And the only way to ever get good at stuff is to practice it, especially what you're not good at. And in terms of everything we just talked about, I think a lot of getting good at that, like a gut feeling to move a tree stand, pulling off a 35-yard shot in the wind, all comes back down to putting practice slash time into it to develop your own knack at it, where my video isn't going to make you do it my way. My video is going to get you on the right path, and then you're doing it your way. And a lot of the stuff we always say at the end of our things, we're like, you know, always remember when you're getting out there and you're doing stuff, be original doing it. Like meaning just do it your own way, maybe refined from what someone else did. And don't be afraid to ask for help from someone, you know? Yeah, I get you there, man. I like I like that that was your message, you know, practice makes perfect. And that's something people hear, but they ha- they're not really driven in. And I believe that too, just for me hunting year after year after year, I get, you know, I don't know if you get, like a better hunter or a, you get smarter and that's yes. that's 90 percent of you know 
you know, before I would do something, well, I'm going to do this. And now I'm like, why did I ever do that? That's the dumbest thing ever. You know, no I, you know what I mean? Yeah, so, like so. five years ago, I'm scouting Ohio. Why was, what was I doing? I was walking with a blindfold on in circles, pointing at trees that look pretty, like made no sense. Now I'm like, I go in with so much more intent. There's less wasted time. But that came out of, I don't know, 18, 19, whatever years, 20 years I've been hunting. Oh, my God, guys, 21 years <laughs> archery hunting. Like, Jesus, I've probably been archery hunting about as old as you guys are. <laughs> no, we're a little older than that. I'm I'm a 25. How many, how old are you? 27. 27, yep. We it's, still... my 22nd, it's my 22nd year. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we got you on. We got to get the, we got to get the information, man. You're full of it. Yeah. So. We appreciate yeah. you so much for coming on, man. I think we oh, need I to have it. you on again after you guys go out west and, and hunt those elk because we haven't had an episode like that, and that would be so stellar to have you back yeah, on. Yeah, that'll so. be our fourth and fifth elk hunts in me and Jack's careers. So, like, I won't call us veterans, but knowledgeable enough to talk about it. And we're doing it with gunny and bows, so we kind of cover every facet. Yeah, I would love to. Heck, yeah, man. Well, thank you so much. We're going to wrap this up. Uh, just to the listeners there, you guys remember, always have fun. We love you. Thanks for listening.